All right. Um, we're, we are going to be in Romans today. If you want to turn there, Romans 12. Um, as we do uh, during Advent season each year, we do a brief series on hope called Expectant. Um, and perhaps it's clear, but we're not just talking about hope in general, but the hope that God has promised and is leading his people towards in the life to come. Uh, so last week we did, uh, we talked about the content of our hope, what it is we are hoping in, what hope we have. We read Revelation 1, uh, 21, and we noted three aspects to our hope. And I'll just remind you of those again. Um, first, we talked about the new creation, the new heavens and this new earth, um, that our hope is ultimately in a, a, a physical, recreated, new heavens and earth creation that is buzzing and alive with all the sights and sounds and, and tastes and touch and all that God has created, but all working to display his goodness and wisdom and, and beauty perfectly. We, the second thing we said is that uh, is we talked about the unmediated presence of God, that our hope is in being in the presence of God, that God will dwell with his people, the God who created us, the God who Saves, saved us, saves us, we will dwell in his presence and experience his goodness in an unmediated fashion. And then thirdly, the removal of sin and all of its effects, and including death. Sin, death, mourning, and tears will be done away with. And surely we could spend weeks and weeks just meditating on um, longing for, getting excited about what that means. Um, and part of what we talked about last year, last week, is that we don't do that very well. We don't, we don't typically do that well, and so that's what we're trying to do in this series. Today, we're going to consider the practice of hope. What, is it, what does it actually mean to live with hope? Uh, because this whole idea of hope, that there's something coming, isn't only about some reality in the future. It's also meant to affect and change how we live here and now, Right? as we reflect and long for that hope. And so Paul says something really interesting in 2 Timothy 4. He says, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to, and here's the phrase, all who have loved his appearing. So there are those who are longing for, anticipating, desiring, loving, the appearing, the return of Christ. You know, just as the hope of summer break, if you were in school, sustains and strengthens you through the sp spring semester, right? Just as the hope of getting a paycheck at the end of a couple weeks or at the end of the month sustains and strengthens you for working hard during that period, just as the hope of holding a new baby sustains and strengthens a mother through, so I am told, through nine months. Likewise, waiting expectantly and hoping in and longing for all that God has promised his people is meant to strengthen and sustain us now. It's meant to have an effect on how we live here and now. So we're going to talk about that from Romans 12. We'll be in chapter 12 Verse 12, we're just going to cover one verse, but first let me set up the context a bit. 
So the first 11 chapters of Romans paint this glorious picture and give this great, very in-depth defense of the saving grace of God in Jesus. They, they proclaim that God's salvation is great and glorious because it is by grace, through faith, in the sacrificial work of Jesus. Um, this is summed up well in chapter 6 in a well-known verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. It is not us partnering with God. It is not meeting in the middle. It's not an arrangement where like, well, God will do this, and then if you do this. No, me, we merely hear this message of God's free salvation, what he has done for us in Jesus, and we turn to him in faith. And there is no other pathway to having peace with God, being reconciled with God, and having eternal life than through grasping Jesus as Lord and Savior by faith. So in a very small nutshell, that is Romans 1 through 11. There's a lot more there, but that is the summary of chapters 1 through 11. Chapter 12 is a transition. In chapter 12, Paul transitions to the response that such a glorious and gracious salvation calls for. He begins to talk about the love and the obedience and the godly living that naturally flow out of those whom God has saved. And so you see this in the very first verse of chapter 12. It's, you see that it's transitioning. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, just one easy way to, to note this change in Romans um, is to notice that in the first 11 chapters of Romans, there are six commands. There's hardly any commands because it's all about what God has done for us. In the final five chapters of Romans, there are 81 commands. All about what does this salvation now mean for us? What does it call us to? And this layout, this structure is, is common in Paul's letters. Um, and it's very important to, to recognize. What Paul is showing is that God first works to make us his own. He takes the initiative, he sends Jesus to, to live the life that we should have lived in righteousness and in obedience and faithfulness. He sends Jesus to die for our sins. He sends a spirit to capture our hearts and apply this work to us as we hear it by faith. And the only command in all of this is hear and believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's, that's the, the single command. Behold Christ, believe in him, believe on him. But then, having done this, God then calls us to live in light of this. He equips us to love and live for him. This is a response. Obedience to God is a response to the faithful love of God. Now, you, you get a picture of this, and you see something of this, right, in, in how families work, in the dynamic of a household, where as a child, you, you are loved to some degree, imperfectly, but to some degree, you are loved by a parent or, or two parents. 
And on your good days, you were loved. And on your bad days, you were still loved. The atmosphere is one of faithful, committed love, even though we parents don't always display that so well. Likewise, once you trust in Christ through faith, you are a called a child of God, and you are part of the household of God. And when faith and faithfulness are easy, when you feel like you're knocking out of it out of the park, you see fruit in your life, your heart is pure, you are loved because you're a child. And when faith and faithfulness are a struggle, and when you struggle to see much fruit, at least any good fruit, when you realize anew that the depth of your sin and impurity and selfishness, and you certainly don't feel that you could ever be loved by a holy God, you are still loved because you're a child. Um, just like a child in a home, your situation is not to wake up every day and prove that you're worth your parents' love. It is to wake up confident that your heavenly Father loves you fully and delights in you willingly because He has made you His, and you've received Him by faith. And yet, in a loving home, a good father or mother still teaches and guides and corrects their children to live in certain ways. It's not loving to say to a child, I love you, so just live and do whatever you want. I don't really care. It's not loving to say to a child, you can, you can eat a, a diet of candy or you can eat a balanced diet. I don't really care. Just eat whatever you want. For God, who fully knows what is best, to say to us who don't always know what is best and still battle sinful desires and wills, sometimes we want that only candy diet, to say just go do whatever you want would not be loving. And so what God does is both make us his own, make us his child positionally in Christ, and teach and guide and equip us to live as his child in ways that glorify him, that reflect his character in ways that are good for us and the world. Uh, you get a, just a little snapshot of this um, in the, when Jesus uh, approaches the woman caught in adultery. And just in his, his words to her, he says, Neither do I condemn you, and now go, and from now on sin no more. So first you have this gracious welcome and acceptance. I do not condemn you. I do not hold this sin against you. But in such a gracious welcome, go now and sin no more. And this is something that our hearts struggle with. Typically in one of two ways. Sometimes we want to switch the order around. We, we want to live as if obedience leads to love and acceptance. God makes me his own because of how well I'm doing, how moral or religious I am living, how well I am doing, not doing all the things that other people do. At least I'm not as bad as them. And of course, this either makes us proud and boastful when we're doing well, or it makes us despairing when we're not doing well and we know we don't match up. Or 
we want to say that the commands don't really matter. We're saved by grace, and that's all that really needs to be said. And we fail to read the second half of Paul's letters, where all the commands are. We don't think that obedience and godly living and striving after godliness has any place in the life of God's people. And in both of these ways, legalism on the one hand, license on the other, we diminish God's grace. We diminish the the freedom of God's grace, the glory of God's grace, the joy of living in God's grace, and the power that God's grace brings us. We turn it into something that maybe we can just control. I'll just do this little thing and then I can kind of control what God does for me, or we could turn it into something um, that just justifies our selfish living. And we miss the glory of God in his salvation, which is really what it's all about. And so the question we should ask ourselves and continue to ask ourselves, and to a degree, if we belong to one another in a church, ask of one another is, has God's grace taken hold of our life? Has, is God's grace bearing fruit in our lives? Have we beheld him and grasped him in such a way that it is changing us? Because we are told that Christ's love constrains or compels us. Or do we merely obey out of fear in order to try to keep him loving us, in order to try to have one-up God and keep him under our control? So that's the shift that chapter 12 makes, leading to these last five chapters of the book, where we find these 81 commands for how God's people, bought and won and compelled by his grace, ought to live. And we're just going to hone in on one verse, which has three commands in it, in verse 12. What does it mean to look, what does it mean and look like to live with hope here and now? So let me read verse 12, and then we'll work through it. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. It's really nice when a verse actually gives you three points. It's just right there. You can just walk through it. So that's what we'll do. First, what does it mean to rejoice in hope? Well, obviously, first of all, this means we need to know something of our hope. We need to know that we have a hope and something of what it's like. So to use the analogy I used last week, if you are going on vacation to Disneyland or Great Wolf Lodge or Hawaii, it's really nice to know that you're going, and it's really nice to know something of what that's like. And so you research it, and you look into it, and you start to get excited. It's hard to rejoice in the hope if you don't know about it. Secondly, if we're to rejoice in hope, this means we must put some time to thinking about it, considering it, thinking on it. You know when you're so busy leading up to a vacation that you don't have time to do that? You don't have time to actually think on what is coming and how excited you should be? You're just like focused on, i got to get this done and this done and this done. Well, God doesn't want us to do that. God actually wants us to long for and get excited about, rejoice in hope now for what is to come. And the natural outcome as we as we become aware of our hope, and as we think on it, in, is that we rejoice in it. 
you know, if, if you're a kid and you're, you find out, your parents tell you you're going to, to Disneyland, no one needs to tell you, be excited now. You, you get excited. When, when you're waiting for Christmas and you know you're getting a certain gift, no one needs to tell you, be excited. You, you just get excited. Similarly, the, the greatness and glory and satisfaction and rest of the hope that God has given his people is meant to lead us to joy. We don't have to pretend to be joyful. We just have to behold what God has promised and consider it. But I do think there's another side of this which needs mentioning. Surely one of the reasons we find rejoicing in hope so difficult is not because we find any lack in what God has promised, but because so much else fills our time and our thoughts. We're too busy to rejoice in hope. We're too distracted. We're too comfortable to rejoice in hope. We're perhaps caught up on short-lived hopes of tomorrow, of next week, of next year, a new house, a new job, a, an addition, new marriage, retirement, new toys, college, empty nesting, whatever. All of these things that we may get excited about, and there's lots to hope in in this life. But we were made for more than this world in this current state can give us. We were made for more than our bodies in their current state can give us. And God calls us to live actively longing for, waiting for, hoping in that which is to come. So no matter how good things get in this life, don't let your hopes settle. Don't think that this life can be, can, can hold your hopes. Practically, what does this look like? Well, I think part of it is that we repent of not rejoicing in hope. Uh, the command to rejoice is kind of one of those commands that we don't really think is a command, right? It's kind of like a half-hearted suggestion. Nah, eh, try to be joyful sometimes. It's pretty hard. You're probably not going to do it, but eh, you should try. No, it's a command. We are commanded to rejoice because there is reason sufficient. It is right. It, it makes sense rationally, logically, if you will, for God's people to rejoice. And not doing so, living as if we were supposed to be just sour and glum and solemn about everything, is sinful. And we should confess and repent of it. And then, on the flip side, don't just put a smile on your face. That doesn't mean you're joyful. But spend some time reflecting on the hope that is ours in Christ and the joy that is ours. Uh, do this in Scripture, of course. Another good way to do this is in singing hymns. So you may know, you may have recognized that a lot of hymns end with a verse on eternal hope. I'll just give you a couple. For, for my hope is built on nothing less. The final verse says, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We also sing, and mine are keys to Zion city, where beside the king I walk, for there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore.
There's so much that we can reflect on, meditate on, consider when it comes to the hope that we have. So rejoice in hope. This then, then goes hand in hand with the second command, be patient in tribulation. So if you put these together, our rejoicing should be a patient rejoicing as we walk through the troubles and tribulations of life. Our patience in tribulation should be a joyful patience in light of what is to come and what, what God has promised. Um, this word tribulation can be translated distress, affliction, trouble. Jesus uses the same word in, in John where he says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Jesus plainly tells us that we will experience trouble in this world. And what he doesn't do is give us a roadmap around it all. What he doesn't do is give us all these life hacks in order to never experience trouble. It's what a lot of other people want to give you. Jesus doesn't give us that. He also doesn't tell us that if you have enough faith, if you pray enough, if you're, if you're just godly enough, then you, then you won't really experience any trouble. Rather, he teaches us to hold on to him and find peace in and through the trouble. He says things like, be patient in tribulation because the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Be patient in tribulation because we know that trials test the genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold. Be patient in tribulation because Jesus says, I have overcome this world. And all tribulation bows down to me and works for my purposes. Be patient in tribulation because Jesus was. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Be patient in tribulation because this is, as we just read in the beginning of Romans 12, your living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, your spiritual worship. I said rejoicing and patience go hand in hand. We are called to live with both of these at one and the same time, a joyful patience, a patient joy. And it doesn't take very long to realize that this is stark, this is in stark contrast to what our world and what our sinful hearts entice us towards, which would be impatient joy. What our worlds and our sinful hearts want is impatient joy. We want a joy that is here and now, that we can grasp that is ours. And if it's not within reach, we must find a way to get it. Whether through credit card debt, through lusting after and taking what is not ours, through various ways, all but trusting in God to give us what we need. Our whole culture is set up to convince you that you are, your life as it is now is not good enough, that you're missing out on some joy, and that you could have it for only $15.99. <laughs> Don't wait. Get it now. Perhaps it's coming for Christmas for you. It's wrapped up under the tree. 
And living with the hope of God requires us to refuse to believe those lies. Living with the hope of God requires us to refuse to believe those lies, we are, which we are fed hundreds or thousands of times a day. That is not our hope. That is not where our rejoicing comes from. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And then the third command here is, is really just a way to put these two into practice. Be constant in prayer. Prayer trains us to live with hope. Uh, it's certainly not a rule, but it is likely the more we pray, the more we will live with hope. Because prayer does two things. First, prayer teaches us dependence. Prayer teaches us dependence. Prayer is a willful act of dependence and trust. Just by the act of praying, no matter how long your prayer is or passionate your prayer, you are recognizing your dependence on God. Even, even if slightly, when you turn to pray, you are recognizing that you need something that only God can give. This is why, partly why, it is so hard to pray sometimes. Because we don't want to be dependent on God. We want to figure things out. We want to think that we are self-sufficient and strong and independent. We want to use our reason and ability and strength alone to fix and find things out. Perhaps we'll trust in God when nothing else works, but for the meantime, let's see if we can handle it. Which is why God loves to work through weakness and insufficiency. But secondly, prayer helps us hope because prayer reminds us of heaven, heavenly realities. Prayer corrects our vision, if you will. It's like putting on a new pair of sunglasses and seeing the world anew, seeing it as it actually is. We pray and we, we, we remember and we see that God is still on the throne. That he is at work. That he is bringing about his purposes and his promises. For example, when you pray for a sick or hurting loved one, you are remembering that they are ultimately not in the doctor's hands, not in your hands, not in the hands of fate, but in God's hands. You are remembering that God is at work. God can do more than we ask or imagine. And whatever he does do, we, we trust that his ways are higher than our ways. When he chooses not to heal or simply works differently than, differently than we pray, we are reminded that his will and his ways are not ours, but better and higher. So one of the best ways to learn to live with hope and rejoice in hope is to be constant in prayer. Pray prayers of request. God invites us to bring our requests to him. To bring our wills, no matter how imperfect, to him. Bring him our desires and our longings and fears and needs and ultimately trust him with the results. Pray prayers of thanksgiving. Thank God for who he is and for what, who he is even now, whether you can see that or not, and for what he has done. Pray, pray prayers of worship. Worship God for who he is and for what he's done. And pray prayers of confession. 
confessing that you need not only God's grace, but his strength, whether you realize it or not. So rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. And one final thing we should note about these is such commands, and these commands are not limited by your situation in life or by your temperament, your personality. So some of us might be tempted to think that, well, some of us might find that rejoicing comes pretty naturally. But perhaps we struggle with the patience command. And so we might be tempted to, to believe something of a prosperity gospel. That, that our joy can be found fully here and now with what is in front of me. That because God has loved me, God will make my life easy and pain-free and full of wealth. Well, to you, God says, rejoice in hope. Rejoice in what has been promised and what is surely coming when Christ returns. And when tribulation comes... And it will be patient. On the other hand, perhaps some of us would brush over the rejoicing part and think that that surely isn't meant for us. Our experience of life, one trouble after another, one pain and heartache after another, and we conclude that God doesn't really mean this for us. That God's goodness and God's joy isn't isn't ours. Perhaps we would never say that, but it's functionally how we live. We live as if sourness and sadness and bitterness were sensible and somehow pleasing to God. As if our tribulation and our, our tears and our troubles were the last word on our life. God perhaps blesses others, but certainly he hasn't decided to bless me. And to you, God says, rejoice in hope. Now, not tomorrow, not when things get easier, not when life makes more sense. No, this command to rejoice in hope is made for moments like this, for people who know that they have little hope in this world. Again, it is completely sensible and rational and good and right and pleasing to God for God's people, wherever they are, whatever situation they find themselves in, whatever temperament they have, to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, and to be constant in prayer. No matter what we are facing, this is the attitude and disposition that God calls us to and also empowers us and equips us for. We are to be people of hope. Not wishful thinking, not mere positivity, not optimism, but a sure and steady hope. Let's pray.